time I spoke, we uh, started a new mini-series called The Importance of the Mind, and uh, we're continuing with that mini-series today. Uh, Last time I spoke, we looked at how our minds um, can so easily influence us and hold us back from the things of God. We looked at how our thoughts can dictate our actions. We looked at how we can have a mind that is full of life and peace instead of death. We looked at how we need to watch out for the enemy's mind control. And we also looked at how we need to accept Jesus's righteousness as a gift to us that we need to accept that gift and walk in that gift every single day. And today we're in Romans, and we're back in Romans. We're in Romans 12 this time, verses 1 to 8. So you might want to turn to your Bibles, swipe to them. And it's also going to come up on the screen as well. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophecy, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Amen. Uh, Anyone here remember Transformers, the Transformer toys? Yes. I grew up with a younger brother who was slightly obsessed with Transformers. Our two boys, they've outgrown them now, but they loved the Transformer toys. And uh, for those of you that don't know what they are, they're normal looking toy cars. That's what they look like. But little do you know that when you take hold of this toy car and you start twisting it and turning it, it becomes a robot, a big robot. And today I believe that's a picture of what God does in our lives, what God does in our our thought life. What he does is he takes our normalness, our humanness, and he takes us into the palm of his hand. And he starts reshaping us, remoulding us, recreating us so that our thought life, our minds, our bodies, our spirits are transformed by the spirit of the living God at work in us. And in this passage, we're told, don't conform, but be transformed. Verse 2 says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Now, we we can't take the world's pattern, we can't take the world's value system and God's will and try and bring them together. They're completely incompatible. In fact, they're in direct conflict with each other. 
Uh, a few Christmases ago now, my middle son received a magnet set for Christmas. And it was one of those things where he opened it up and I was thinking, that's interesting, that's going to last five minutes. I bet he's never going to look at that again. But actually, he loved it. And he spent months playing with this magnet set. And uh, the thing that he desperately wanted to do more than anything was take two magnets and try and push them together. But you see, there was two opposing forces in these magnets. And no matter how hard he tried to push these magnets together, they would never, never become anywhere near each other. He realized after a good few weeks that it was an impossible thing to do. And in this life, there is two standards of living, isn't there? There's two ways we can live our lives. We can live the world's way or we can live the kingdom way. And we're called to be in the world, but not part of the world. And as Christians, I think it's fair to say that that isn't always easy. Because our natural inclination, because of our humanness, because of our brokenness, is always to bend towards the world's way of doing things. The I want, the I desire, I need, I deserve way. Rather than God's way the kingdom way, the sacrificial laying down of our lives, our hopes, our dreams, our relationships, our finances, and walking God's path. You know, these two ways, the world's way and God's way, are completely polar opposite. And so there is no possibility that they're ever going to compromise, that they're ever going to come together. And yet, we as Christians... I think we're so often in danger of blurring in with the world. We were down south a few weeks ago for the October holidays and we went to like a mini zoo and we saw a chameleon. Now, we knew there was a chameleon in the cage because the plaque said there's a chameleon in there, but for ages it took us a really long time to actually see the chameleon because it was fading in to the background. It was fading in with uh, the cage and the environment that it was in. And I wonder if we are like that as Christians sometimes. I, uh, if you like, was diagnosed with being colorblind when I was at primary school. And uh, the school nurse was over the moon that I was colorblind. Evidently, it's really unusual for a girl to be colorblind. And she was coming towards the end of her career and she had never met a girl who was colorblind. So she was over the moon. She was like, you're one in a million. I've discovered you. I was like, oh, wow, that's really nice to know. Brilliant. And if I'm honest with you, it hasn't really affected me at all because I can see blocks of color fine. But recently, my darling husband, I'm sure he did this to kind of have a laugh at me, said, hey, let's take a colorblind test. And so uh, we did this test online where there was four uh, sorry, 10 images uh, for us to go through to test if we were colorblind or not. Now for Chuck, every single page, he could see a picture, a shape, a pattern. Everything jumped out at him. He got 10 out of 10. And then it was my turn. Yeah, 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 you would. Uh, then it was my turn. And um, I couldn't see a thing. I couldn't see a thing. Every single page was like a blur. There was nothing that stood out. There was nothing that jumped out at me at all. And I wonder 
if our walk with God is being compromised more than it should? Are our Christian lives in danger of blurring into the background, fading into the world? Do our work colleagues, do our uni mates, do the mums at the school gates see a difference in us, a difference in us? You know, I so think we would love the answer to be yes. Yes. Yes, I see a difference in you. Yes, you stand out. Yes, there's a pattern, there's a shape to your life that I can see. You don't conform. You're different and I see it. But so often that isn't the case, is it? And that is why the Apostle Paul is writing this letter. He's writing this letter to remind people just like us not to conform to the pattern of this world, but to be set apart to be different. And he goes on to tell us how we can do this. End of verse two, he writes, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know, the only way we're gonna stand out, the only way we're gonna be different is by being transformed. And the way we become transformed is when our thinking is transformed. Our mind is renewed. Now, notice here, Paul isn't saying you may be a little bit transformed when your mind's renewed. He's not saying uh, you may or may not be transformed when your mind is renewed. But instead, Paul is saying be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know, he has absolutely no doubt that our lives, our hearts, our thinking will be transformed, will change when we renew our minds when we start to renew our thinking. This little word be, it's really important for us to remember because it's a command. It's a command. The emphasis is on us to be open, to be willing, to make time for, to seek out the Lord. The be part of this is on us. It's our responsibility. The transformation part, that's on God thank goodness. That's his job. You know, we can't transform ourselves any more than those toy cars couldn't turn themselves into robots. Only in God can we be transformed. So B is our responsibility and transformed is what God will always do when we make ourselves available to be. So the question is, how do we be? What, do, what can we do to participate with what God is doing in renewing our minds, transforming our lives? How can we play a part? How can we join in with him? I think this passage teaches us some things. Firstly, be mercy-minded. You know, what better way to renew our minds to, than to look back? To look back at all that God has done in our lives. And that's why in verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. The Apostle Paul, who's writing this letter, knows only too well from first-hand experience about the amazing wonders of God's mercies. Before being called Paul, Paul was called Saul. And he was a guy that at best threatened, beaten, intimidated and persecuted Christians. To sum it up, he hated Christians. 
And in Acts 9, verse 1, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats that he had against the Lord's disciples. It gives us some kind of an idea of the kind of guy he was. And then one day, he was just walking down the road. He was walking down the Damascus Road. And God's light, his brilliant light from heaven, came and shined upon him. And it blinded him, and he fell to the ground. And God spoke to him, and he had a dramatic conversion. His whole life was transformed. Even his name changed from Saul to Paul. And uh, he became the greatest missionary, the best church planter, the most amazing apostle that ever lived. You see, Paul knows that there is no greater incentive for us to want to live a life that is holy and set apart and pleasing to God than when we look back. We look back at all that God has done in our lives, how he took us from the pit and placed us on the mountain. When we look at the wonders of God's grace and forgiveness and freedom and healing and peace and joy and redemption and hope, that he's given us how can we be anything but thankful how can we be anything but in awe how can we be anything but indebted how can we do anything but praise him when we look at God's mercies in our lives it can only spur us on to want to live a life that is holy and pleasing to God remember God's mercies Let's be mercy-minded people. Let's remember his mercies every day. Because when we do, it brings us into a new perspective. And I love what Tim Hughes writes in one of his songs. He says, in view of God's mercy, I offer my all. And take my life, let it be everything, all of me. Here I am, use me for your glory. In everything I say and do, let my life honour you. Here I am living for your glory. Secondly, be thankful-minded. Verse 1 again, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. What Paul is saying here is, in view of everything that God has done in our lives, there can only possibly be one response. And that response is to offer ourselves in complete gratitude, heartfelt thankfulness to him for everything that he's done. And often I know that I can be the kind of person whose glass is half empty, particularly if the weather isn't great. I can feel myself being kind of sucked into a a lower and lower state. You know, complaining and grumbling comes so easily to us, doesn't it? But not just in us, we see it in kids as well. Do I have to? It's not fair. I hate that. When's it my turn? No, I will not do that for you. You see, whenever we complain, it's like opening up the door and allowing the enemy to walk straight in. Joyce Meyer says, we can't have a transformed mind if our lips aren't speaking thanksgiving and praise to God. And time and time again, the Bible teaches us how to give thanks and praise. And last time I spoke, we looked at what are our minds set on? Are our minds set on the flesh or our minds set on the spirit? 
You know, complaining, when we complain, whether that's just in our own thought life or we say it out loud, it's because our minds are set on the flesh. And that perspective will always lead us into thoughts that aren't great, lead us into death. But being thankful and saying so will always bring us into life. Hebrews 13 verse 15 says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly professes his name. Notice here it says a sacrifice of praise. It may not be something that comes naturally to us, particularly if we were of a certain personality type. We may be a little bit more melancholy than our friends, our family, our spouse. And so, you know, to see things and to be thankful for them may not be part of our natural makeup. I know that is for me. You know, or we could be facing a very painful time, a very difficult time. But in all seasons, we can give thanks and praise to God. In all seasons, Joyce Meyer says, I would rather sacrifice my thanksgiving to God than sacrifice my joy to Satan. It's also a continual thing that we do. Again, in Hebrews, let us continually, not just when times are good or when times are difficult, but continually, all the time, in our worship, in our prayers, when we're talking to God, when we're in the car, giving him thanks and praise. And that way, the devil can have absolutely no control over our thinking. How can he when we're giving God all the praise and all the glory? You know, there is so much power when we praise God in whatever season we're in in our lives because it propels us into the throne room of the king. It propels us into the very presence of God. But not only that, surprising and miraculous things happen when we praise God. And not only that, but it breaks the enemy's grip that he has over that particular situation. Let's also be people who are thankful for the little things. You know, we have so much. We have been given so much. The fact that we can meet right now in a public place and worship God and open God's word is amazing. It's amazing. Let's be people that not only thank God for the big things in our lives, but also the little things. Let's be thankful-minded people. Thirdly, be God-minded. Again, verse 1, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. When we read this, it's a call. It's a call for our lives to live a life that is holy and pleasing to God. There's a phrase to the audience of one. It doesn't matter about anyone else, but it matters about you, God. I'm living my life for you. And in order for this to happen, we need God to be the center of our day, the center of our hearts, the center of our thoughts. A few months ago now, uh, we were coming back from church and we were all a little bit um, hangry, as uh, my mum calls it. We were a bit tired and we were hungry. And uh, we were in uh, quite a rush to get out of the car and get lunch on. 
and uh, Chuck started putting the lunch on. I was uh, unloading the dishwasher. The kids were playing. And it must have been about 20, 25 minutes after we'd left the car that the doorbell rang. And there stood our six-year-old daughter on the doorstep sobbing. It transpires that in our rush to get out of the car, we left her in the car, we locked the car. I'm a good mum, really, honestly. (laughs) And uh, our poor daughter, she was so upset. She was so upset. What she had to do, because the car was locked, was climb over into the driver's seat, and eventually she worked out the button she needed to press so she could unlock the car and get out. She was so upset with us. One, that we left her in the car. Secondly, we locked her in the car. And thirdly, that we didn't even notice that she wasn't with us. She was so upset. The point is that our lives can so often be so busy that we can leave Jesus behind. You know, we love him, we worship him, we pray to him, we follow him, and yet it's still so easy for us to forget about him. We're so busy doing life that we forget about the person who gave us life. Not just life here on earth, but life in eternity as well. The scary thing for me was, if Hope hadn't rang the doorbell, how long would it have taken me to realise that she wasn't with us? In Isaiah 26, verse 3, in the Living Bible, it says, He will keep in perfect peace all those who trust in him, whose thoughts turn often to the Lord. Nothing is closer to us than our own thoughts. So if we fill our mind with the Lord, it will bring him into our consciousness. Jesus is always with us, but we will never be conscious of his presence unless we think about him. It's like being in the same room as someone and not actually seeing them. I can't be the only person that's done this. You know when your mind is elsewhere and there's someone who actually you know quite well in a room or in a shop or walking down the street, but you just don't see them because your mind is focused on something else. And it's only days later when they come up to you and it's like, did you not see me? Waving and shouting your name and all of that. I'm so sorry. I didn't even notice you. So often it can be like that with Jesus. Jesus is always, always with us. But we need to think on him and be aware of his presence. Thinking on God and his ways can become a regular part of our thought life. Maybe we need to ask the question a lot more, where is Jesus? Is he with me? Is he in my thoughts? Is he in my decision making? Is he in my plans? Is he in my business? Or have I left him? Have I left him in the car? Have I locked him out? Fourthly, our minds are transformed when we be word-minded. End of verse 2 says, Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. How do we know what God's will is? We know what God's will is when we open his word, when we read the Bible. I had the privilege of going on a mission trip Uh, to Central Asia and um, I had an amazing time saw uh, the persecuted church in a whole new way despite the persecution they face God's church is thriving 
unbelievably thriving. I mean, it's, it is miraculous. And um, I heard so many amazing stories. Difficult stories, miracle stories, and it was just a wonderful time. Uh, one story that I heard was that the KGB are now going into schools, spot-checking kids' phones. And what they're doing is they're looking down the kids' phones and they're looking for an app. They're looking for the Bible app. And if the KGB find a Bible app on a, on a child's phone, if it's their first offence, they will have a severe warning. If it's their second offence, then they are likely to be kicked out of school. Their parents are likely to lose their jobs. They face persecution, maybe torture, maybe imprisonment. It's crazy. It's crazy. They're not safe in their own homes to read the Bible. They're not safe walking down the street. They're not safe in their schools. Yet, they still continue to read God's word, to carry God's word. Teenagers, young people, why? Why? Because God's word is essential to us. It's essential to our walk with God. We need his word. The Bible is God's word, his thoughts, his heart, his promises. Everything he thinks of is in the Bible. It's got everything we possibly need to know about what God thinks about every situation and every subject in the word of God. God's given us his word so that we can freely and openly study it. And to persecuted Christians across the world, they have decided that the cost is nothing compared to the reward of being able to read God's word. It's essential to us. Joyce Meyer says, meditating on the word of God is one of the most important things we can do because when we meditate on God's word, it will minister life to us and also to those around us. To meditate on God's word means that we allow his word to become a living message within our hearts. And I'm aware when I speak about the word meditation that maybe for some of us here, we've got little warning bells going off because we've heard of the word meditation used in conjunction with occult practices and new age practices. But actually, the principle of meditation comes directly out of the Bible. In Joshua 1 verse 8, it says, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it then you'll be prosperous and successful. You see, we'll never be able to put God's word into practice physically if we don't first practice it mentally. We're experts, aren't we, when it comes to meditating on our own problems, on our own situation. We're also experts at meditating on other people's uh, problems and situations. We're experts at meditating on what other people think about us as well. But you know, the more we do that, the more deeply rooted those things become in us. There's a danger that those things become implanted and rooted in our hearts and in our minds that are damaging us. Instead, we must meditate on God's word. We need to allow his word to be welcomed and received and implanted and um, 
rooted and established in our minds and in our hearts. The Bible contains abundant treasures, life-giving secrets that God wants us to unlock. Yet we're never going to be able to unlock these treasures unless we spend time in his word. We mutter his word, we ponder his word, we study his word, we meditate on his word. You know, nothing can change people's lives like the Bible. Absolutely nothing. God's word changes lives. It's as simple as that. You know, politics can't do that. Relationships can't do that. Family can't do that. Our careers can't do that. Money can't do that. Only God's word can do that. Only God's word. Do we believe everything we read online? Of course we don't. Do we believe everything we watch on TV? No. Do we believe everything we read about in magazines and newspapers? Well, we all know we'd be foolish if we did. But yet so often, we spend so much time reading and watching what we know is a lie, rather than reading what we know is truth. God's word is like a hammer, a sword, and a scalpel. All these tools are designed to bring about complete transformation in our lives, to make radical changes. God intends his word to change us and to transform us. And lastly, another way we can make ourselves available to God is when our minds are transformed, when we be encouragement-minded. If we look down to verse 8, Paul is talking about those who have the gift of encouragement and he's encouraging those people to keep exercising that gift. You know, if I said to you, could you name a couple of people who you know have the gift of encouragement, I'm sure you'd be able to give me names because you've had first-hand experience of their encouragement. I think it's so obvious to other people, those who have the gift of encouragement, because they can't help themselves. They're always going around encouraging, encouraging people. You know, a word of encouragement goes such a long way, doesn't it? It's such a boost. It can sometimes make or break a day. Just one word. My little girl, two days ago, she came up to me and she said to me, Mummy, you look so beautiful. And I was like, oh, that is so lovely. That really gave me a boost. And then she said... Because you look so, so old when you don't wear your makeup. (laughs) Now, I'm not talking about that kind of encouragement where you give with one hand and slam dunk with another. I'm talking about the kind of encouragement that in Ephesians 4 verse 29 speaks, speaks about. It says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. You know, we may not all have the gift of encouragement, but we can all learn to be encouraging. Just one truly kind moment of encouragement can spur someone on, can lift someone's spirits. You know, encouragement, it starts with our thoughts. It's an overflow of what we've been thinking up here that we then go and we speak those things out. We can't encourage anyone if we're not first thinking it up here. Joyce Meyer says the simple rule is, if it's not good, then don't think it or say it. And she goes on to say that thoughts and words are weapons for carrying creative 
or destructive power. They can be used against Satan and his works, or they can actually help him in his plan of destruction. The truth is that when we think encouraging thoughts and then we go and give that encouraging thought to someone, not only are we enriching our own uh, thought life, but we're enriching that person's as well. Every time we bring an encouragement to someone is one less time that the enemy can sell that person a lie. The more we encourage, the more we build up. The more built up people become, the more empowered they are to be everything that God created them to be. Let's continue to be a church that is lavish and quick with our encouragement. Let's go the extra mile to encourage. Let's be a people who think and then speak out more and more powerful encouragement. Because the more we do that, the more our minds are then transformed. And finally, in this passage, there's a warning. There's a warning to us in verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, notice here, no one is left out. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Basically, what this passage, this verse is saying is, we need to watch out for pride. Of all the things that Paul could have said about human thinking and the way the mind works, he chose this issue of pride. Don't think more highly of yourself than you should. The the renewed mind does not conform to the world, but is transformed. And Paul's number one priority of how he wants our minds to be renewed and transformed is he wants to start in the area of our pride. The issue of pride and where we place ourselves in relation to God is the deepest human problem in the universe. If our minds are being renewed, then what Paul is saying is, let's start with your pride. Let's start with your pride. I used to think before studying uh, this passage that pride started in the heart, but it's clear from what Paul is saying that actually pride starts in our thinking. And so we're able to stop it before it reaches our hearts. How do we do that? Firstly, we need to recognize what it says in verse 3. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. You know, let's not allow our thinking to elevate ourselves, to position ourselves above anyone else. Above our friends, our family, our colleagues, our neighbors, above God. You see, pride, it brings about a superior attitude in us, which also then brings about a desire for self-exaltation. Pride is so very dangerous to us because what it does is it places us in direct competition with everyone around us. We start competing even with those we love, our spouse, our best friend, even God. When pride is in our thinking, we may scarcely even ask God what he thinks about certain things. Why? Because we already think we know what he thinks. In Isaiah 5, verse 21, it says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Pride is very, very hard for us to detect. And therefore, it is such a danger to us in our Christian walk. Jonathan Edwards said this about pride. It lies lowest of all in the foundation of the whole building of sin and is the most secret, deceitful, 
and unsearchable in its ways of working. It's ready to mix with everything. The Pharisees, who were one of the most proudest people in the New Testament, never gave any indication that they were even remotely conscious of this sin. Why? Because they did not think of themselves with sober judgment, verse 3, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. And for us, if we don't want to be like the Pharisees, then we need to take a regular stock take of our thinking and our attitudes. You know, carving out space and time to allow the Holy Spirit to come, to convict us of areas in our life where pride is taking a hold of us is so important. Because the Holy Spirit will always bring about sober judgment. Always. The Holy Spirit is gentle, but he won't pull any punches. Because he wants to pinpoint and highlight those areas in our lives that he wants to deal with and he wants to free us from. Are we rounding up or rounding down our sense of self-worth, our sense of importance, our sense of achievements? Do we put things in a language that makes us sound better than we really are? I ran that marathon in two hours. Sorry, that half marathon in two hours. That would be amazing. That half marathon in two hours, rather than the two hours and eight minutes it actually was. I passed that exam with flying colours, whereas actually, you know, you just scraped through. I love Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all of that stuff, but you know what? It can so easily allow us to place, um, to become a false person, a perfect person with a perfect life. It's dangerous. You know, most of us have probably got it in us to be excellent spin doctors, masters of our own spin. And so then, if we fail to neglect our thinking, if we fail to allow the Holy Spirit to convict us of errors in our pride, then before we know it, we've become so wrapped up in our own hype, we believe it. And so much so that we actually find it really difficult to be real and to be open and honest with people about how we're really doing, how we're really struggling at work, how actually we feel like the worst parent in the world right now because our home feels like a battleground. How our marriage is really, really hard. How uh, low we've been feeling recently. We don't want to tell anyone. How financially up against it we are and, and, and in so much debt. We don't want to tell anyone these things. We don't want to tell people about the health problems we're facing. How uni has become such um, a struggle for us because we're just not feeling like we, we fit in. You see, we've created a false persona, a fake man, a fake woman that we present to our world and also to the church. We put a front on, often hiding what we really want to say and what we really want to do. And we do that because of our pride. Because people would then see the real us the broken us, the sinful us, the hurting us, the worried us, the far from perfect person that we've actually tried to cover up. And to stop this from happening, we need to keep a check on our thinking. 
We need to keep a check on our thinking, regular stock take, ask the Holy Spirit to convince, convict us, but also, verse 3, measure it against the faith God has distributed to each of you. So as Paul has gone around watching a whole bunch of people puff themselves up, think of themselves more highly than they should, he says, Here, here's how to think more soberly about yourself. Make faith the measure of your mind. Make faith the measure of your heart and your life. He turns praising ourselves on its head. He says, do you want to have significance? Then look to Jesus as infinitely significant. Do you want to have value? Then look to Jesus as infinitely valuable. Do you want to have esteem? Then look to Jesus as worthy of infinite esteem. Faith is looking away from ourselves to another. Faith is total dependence on another. When faith stands... In the mirror, the mirror becomes a window and the glory of Jesus is revealed. Faith looks to Jesus. So what the end of this verse is saying is, when we take a long, sober, hard, proper assessment of ourselves, we need to make our own faith the measure. We need to make Jesus the measure so that we can see and absorb, we can take hold of and embrace Jesus and not ourselves as the highest authority. Jesus and not ourselves is the supreme truth. We compare ourselves to Jesus. We exalt Jesus. We magnify Jesus. He must increase very, very much. And we must decrease very, very much. I'll end with this. A few years ago, we were in France and... um, we were, uh, the kids were playing in the pool. They'd just bought some uh, big inflatables, having a great time, and the lifeguard came up. And uh, he said, you're not allowed inflatables in the pool. And the kids were upset because they just bought them, and they wanted me to go and ask why. Yes, typical leaders, my children. So um, I went, and I spoke to the lifeguard, and we just about made ourselves clear what we were saying. And in broken English, he said to me that the lifeguards can't see what's happening underneath the surface of the water, and therefore, it's just too dangerous. What's under our waterline? If the rubber ring's removed, what is revealed? Why don't we stand?